847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's career, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. On this episode, I have a very special guest. I'm joined by author Jeff Bond, who is also editor of Geek Magazine and writer of liner notes on hundreds of soundtrack albums, as well as producing some of them. He is both well-known and respected within the soundtrack community. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, yeah, uh, I appreciate you making time. I don't. Uh, we'll see how special I am. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm a special guest. <laughs> well, I think you're a special guest, and I, I think all of my listeners will agree as well. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, full disclosure, Brian knows me. I'm just some guy that he knows, so... <laughs> It's not like this is a huge get that you had to crawl across, you know, broken glass through parking lots. Uh, get me, I'm, I'm always available. Well, I, I appreciate you making time for it because, uh, you know, you have a busy schedule. So, um, but I wanted, yeah, I, I wanted to have you on the show just because um, I wanted to talk about some of the, the recent projects that you've done uh, as far as uh, notes for some of the, the album releases from uh, La La Land and Entrada and Quartet, some of those labels, and um, and just you know, sort of get your opinion on some other uh, film music topics. All um, right. But you know, one thing that I actually was going to start with, um, as it maybe it's just my memory is failing me. I don't remember, and I was curious to ask you. I forget, like, what was your sort of spark into film music into uh, you know, film and television music. Uh, you know, I. Uh, what you mean? What got me interested in the music, or how did I start working? What got you into the music first? Uh, well, I, you know, I was just to date myself. I was, you know, growing up as a kid in the '60s, which uh, is still, you know, one of my favorite periods in terms of this music. And and I think especially, you know, I, this is obviously well before the dawn of videotape or cable um so you had three networks and uh, we had i think you know obviously we had a, a black and white television one television originally in my family we eventually got cable and got a color television but i was watching um i think you would have to go back to uh saturday morning cartoons and oh. uh, and johnny quest which which when i watched it originally was not a saturday morning cartoon it was a prime time action show on, oh. on on friday nights and i remember watching it at my grandparents and i'm sure that the minute i heard the title music to that show i was you know going crazy
has all sorts of other fantastic music, and I was, you know, really fortunate to get to to work a little bit on on the release of that music finally that happened in the last few years um and, and there was all sorts of other fantastic tv shows that you know a kid could watch in the 60s i'm particularly uh the Irwin allen shows you know lost in space and voice mm-hmm. of the sea were big uh, favorites of mine when i was a kid and i also remember uh, watching The Man from Uncle and and Wild Wild West and all these shows had very very memorable theme music. They had great action music and you know it was uh, all uh, a lot of it was influenced by the spy craze. Um, right. So you're always hearing bongos and <laughs> all this wild percussion and j- kind of jazzy uh, sounds. Uh, but you were also hearing uh, sort of, you know, versions of avant-garde uh, orchestral music because a, a lot of these shows would have horror or, or science fiction elements that had to be underscored. Uh, so, you know, within a few years of just starting to watch TV, uh, I already was getting this big library of, of really exciting, fascinating music that was not just... Uh, you know what I would you would someone would hear on the radio so, like songs at the time it was a whole other world uh, you know of sound and that immediately got me hooked and and my parents also you know had their own record collection which had a lot of you know standard stuff people were listening to but mm-hmm. was which but all, which included a lot of instrumental stuff like you know brazil 66 and you know herb albert and the tijuana brass of course Uh, there was a lot more i think uh i don't know today that you have any just like purely instrumental music on on like top 40 radio to the extent that that exists yeah now but but uh my my parents also had they i remember distinctly that they had the uh lp of uh, john barry's born free oh wow and and, uh uh, ennio morricone's uh the good and the bad and the ugly which was really popular back then and and that you know was an extraordinary you know whole sonic world unto itself I started. I think I started collecting things on eight-track tape. Those were the first things that I actually bought, and, and uh, right. one of them was uh, John Barry's King Kong score. Oh, wow. uh, one was uh, John Williams' Towering Inferno, and and I was. Uh, you know, very familiar with John Williams' name because his name was on Lost in Space and the Time Tunnel and uh, Land of the Giants, these Irwin Allen shows uh, that I watched. So to me, you know, he, he was this, that was Johnny Williams. <laughs> and as I'd see his name and say, oh, that's the guy who did, you know, Lost in Space. It's a stamp of approval. 
Yeah, yeah. So then he, <laughs> he you know, got those Irwin Allen uh, disaster movies. There there never was a soundtrack to the Poseidon Adventure. I don't think I saw the Poseidon Adventure till years later, but I, uh, Towering Inferno was actually my first date movie. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I saw that, you know, in, in its original theatrical run and, it, you know, immediately ran out and bought that eight track. I think at some point I got a, we had a turntable, like a very old turntable that we occasionally use, but uh, at some point I realized and had enough money uh, that it was cool to own a turntable. Ah. And I went to some record store and bought bought, like some high-end turntable and then started collecting LPs and then was startled by how great they sounded <laughs> and I, I that was when i when i got a i never had gotten anything by jerry goldsmith um even though i was very aware of him, him and and knew he had done you know the man from uncle and i had i had taped uh you know planet of the apes the whole movie right off the television and that, that was something that we did back then i had a whole tapes of uh i started taping you know my favorite tv show themes uh, or and yeah. whole whole Star Trek episodes and stuff, so I could you know listen yeah. to music in them. Yeah, uh, and uh, the first Jerry Goldsmith LP I got, I think, was the Blue Max. Shortly after that, I think I got a patch of blue. Um, I think uh, Boys from Brazil, uh, Logan's Run, that was a huge deal. Because Logan's Run was one of the movies that I taped off television. Oh, okay. And I had no idea that there was an LP for it. And I remember like finding it. And I went, was in a record store one day and found it and was completely thrilled. So that that's sort of the, the background event. And then eventually I got... You know, m- more and more focus on, on Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, John Williams, obviously, too, was a huge, huge, right. uh, you know, uh, presence and someone that I always was, uh, you know, bowled over and, and, and collected his his work. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, I think, to this day, is the only composer where I just decided I had to have everything that he did and uh, <laughs> almost sight, uh, almost all sight unseen. It was almost never like, Oh, I saw this movie and Jerry Goldsmith's score. It was literally like, just go to the G's, you know, and the <laughs> record store and see if there was anything by that guy. And, yeah. and, and wind up seeing the movie, you know, years after I oh, had yeah. the music completely memorized. And it was always like, this is what he wrote it for. <laughs> it is crazy. And it is kind of funny that they, I, I, you know, came to the same conclusion probably in the mid nineties after I had bought a lot of Jerry Goldsmith albums. And it was actually a lot of your articles in film score monthly 
that kind of helped me seek out, oh, I've never seen that movie, but I'm going to get that album. And then I did eventually get to the same point of I just had to pick up everything that had his name on it. Um, I sent Lucas, uh, you know, when I the I I found uh, Film Score Monthly, which w- uh, was again another like kind of more of a pamphlet than a yeah. magazine at the time. <laughs> and I found a copy of it in Tower Records and went a trip on a trip to Chicago. And uh, I started corresponding with Lucas. I always tell the story that I, um, you know, I went to a Jerry Goldsmith concert, the first one I'd ever been to. I t- took my best friend. We both were absolutely fascinated by Jerry Goldsmith, and we went. Dr- we were in Northwest Ohio. We drove to Detroit to this concert, and it was still it's still the best Jerry Goldsmith concert I've ever been to. He played um, this like a twenty minute suite from Boys from Brazil. Oh my gosh! And he, and he played the you know March from Star Trek the Motion Picture, and that is not an easy thing uh, even for him to you know <laughs> get a good performance. Right. Uh, an orchestra from and this was one of the best possibly the best performance of it i ever heard so the whole concert was incredible and then we you know went backstage afterwards and met him and he yelled at me because uh (laughs) i told him we worshiped him as a god and uh but we were you know we walked out of it like you know just oh my god we you, you know we met jerry goldsmith and i wrote um they had a letters column in the in film score monthly and i wrote a letter, you know, about, you know, like, hey, I like the magazine, and, you know, my friend and I went to this concert, and this is what it was like, and then when I got the next issue, I was looking through it, and I saw this big article, and I looked at the byline, and I was like, oh, this guy has the same name as me, (laughs) Uh, and it was, Lucas had just run my letter as a concert review, so that was my first, you know, published work uh, as a writer, and I still owe Lucas, you know, everything for getting me uh, professionally published and, you know, getting me all sorts of other work. And it, I mean, yeah, it's, it really did, I guess that was the, the spark there. Um, and, and as far as like your writing and Jerry Goldsmith, that kind of, I wanted to touch on one of the most current albums that you did that you wrote the notes for, for Goldsmith score, which was Entrada's release of the reincarnation of Peter Proud. Yeah. So that was an un- I knew of it by reputation. Um, never seen the movie. Well, did this not is know what not, it sounded you're like. not unique because that is the movie has really been buried for years. And uh, I, I don't recall it. Maybe I think maybe it, back in the day it had run on television, maybe in as syndication or something. 
But and I don't know if it was a rights issue or I strongly suspect that it was a, uh, you know, just about what the movie content. Was. Yeah, content. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a a movie you, I I don't think you could possibly make today with like major stars. Uh, yeah, it seems to it, skirt the edge of decency, it, it, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it in you know the plot uh, in it's about reincarnation, but then. The, uh, the reincarnated guy winds up, you know, hitting on his own daughter <laughs> and basically having an affair with her and sleeping with her. And then there's a whole plot with the, 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 his, you know, wife in the previous life, uh, starts suspecting that this is who he is, that he's the reincarnation of her husband who was basically a philandering monster who, you know, maritally rapes her in one scene and there's a whole and that that who she's still fixated on and right. this whole just <laughs> unbelievable you know i was watching the scene just like thinking like what am i watching <laughs> where, where you know margot kidder who's who's giving a fantastic performance uh basically playing this character you know she plays her as a young wife in the in the 40s and mm-hmm. then plays the same character with almost no old age makeup uh, 30 years later huh. as, as sort of this bitter old woman and then you know there's a scene where she's in a bathtub basically masturbating you know re- longingly remembering the moment <laughs> she was raped by her husband and then she later you know she kills him uh so it, it is a really really strange kind of effed up movie and but that was to me like kind of the genius of of uh jerry goldsmith and that's what i was thinking when i was watching uh this scene it's like this is something only jerry goldsmith (laughs) could could score somehow Uh, he finds a way into that kind of picture i don't know what what he what he what he latches on to um, he's i think his yeah to me his greatest strengths and he would this is would be another thing that he would yell at me about if he was here but <laughs> you know i and i remember L- lucas and i having lunch with his uh daughter um who's a wonderful nice lady and she and and i think uh you know jerry himself uh always wanted and kind of uh was drawn to more of the like lighter side uh at least later in Mm -hmm. his career he i think that he did so many horror films and so many action films and so many films with so much violence uh but he he was very proud of things like a patch of blue and and uh much more intimate kind of uplifting things stuff like rudy Mm -hmm. or, or hoosiers those seem like the things that he was more drawn to uh, personally, and I think that he, he, I think that he did have a uh, almost like kind of playfully dark side that that he he did enjoy, <laughs> you know, exploring that like edgy, dark uh, side of things in in these other movies. I and think I, he I, had to have found it interesting, at least just to sonically experiment, because yeah. he couldn't have done for Rudy or Patch of Blue what he did for Mephisto Waltz or Peter Proud. And I, it seems like he liked being strange acoustically yeah. or electronically. He, he definitely has. There's many, you know, points in interviews where he says, "Oh yeah, I had fun, you know, doing this 
or that. And and uh, there's some. Uh, who is his uh, engineer? Famous. Uh, oh, Bruce. Is that yeah, Bruce? Bruce uh, oh. Yeah, uh, Bruce Botnick. Botnick. Um, there, I we were talking to him, or I was reading an interview with Bruce where he said something about how you know Jerry's like they were uh, watching some scene of some guy get killed, and after the guy gets killed, he, he said like he saw Jerry like chuckle. <laughs> Um, so I think, and and I, you could see this, I think, in Jerry's music, that there's um, almost like a kind of a like playful fiendishness, uh, yeah. where he did enjoy uh, just getting this kind of crazy, you know, what what's the craziest music he could write to describe, you know, what what's going on. So there's no doubt that he tackled all this stuff enthusiastically but i i think particularly after so many years of doing it and and i i my one interview with him you know i wanted to ask him about total recall and which is you know one of my all-time favorite things that he ever did right and he was very proud of it and said you know he thought it was great musically but then he was like but nobody gave a damn you know and he and he, he didn't get a nomination for it Right after that was when he kind of swore off action films for a few years, and he did all these. He literally did like all these women's pictures, right? Um, that all had uh, things like Angie and Sleeping, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy, Enemy yeah. uh, Bad Girls. I right. mean, there's like at least half a dozen of them, and they were things he had re- sort of never really done before. And uh, you know, he he got into that for a while. I think some you know some of that too. I think was the influence of um, his agent, Richard Kraft, because mm-hmm. Richard was always trying to, for what, just Richard would do it sometimes for his own amusement. He'd like try <laughs> to find something he thought Jerry had never done before and, and he wanted to see how Jerry oh, would tackle yeah. it. But I, I think also Jerry, you know, was interested in doing some different kinds of things after doing so many actions. Yeah, I think creatively, maybe he just needed to kind of refill his, his tank or just, just feel something, attack something different like six degrees of separation or something that's so markedly different um but it's it's a you know it's and yet he's a complicated man i think what's what's interesting is he is he was he seemed very complicated um and yet all of that is that comes through in his music i think uh his personality his complications well he you know he did this um uh 
very, very complex and agitated, kind of angry uh, piece of classical music or concert music. It's just called uh, Music for Orchestra. Uh, he did, I think, in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, is, and it's around the same time that he did stuff like the Mephisto Waltz and some, you know, these kind of incredible avant-garde scores. But he said um, that he was, you know, when he wrote that piece, he was going through a divorce. And, and he basically worked out all of his anger uh, <laughs> of, uh, about going through this divorce into this piece of music. And it's like one of the darkest, you know, just most incredibly percussive, furious things that he ever wrote. And it's interesting to think about, because obviously with a concert piece, you're able to do whatever you want. You have to wonder whether there were any other scores where he was working out, you know, oh, absolutely personal issue. Because, yeah. they, they, you know, there, like, there's a there's got to be a, some kind of limit or constraint on what you can do with that, because you're not you have to write it to, you know, what's going on on screen. And what, yeah. What, so you're not going to just. <laughs> I, I think what's Dude, what, and what I have to think that that there's certainly some of what was going on in his life bled through into his music. Absolutely, and I and I, I like to think like if he if he did any of his pictures ten years before or ten years later, it wouldn't be the same score. Is it would reflect whatever he who he was as a man at yeah. that time. So if he, he had, always that's sort of the great thing about uh, Goldsmith, which is frustrating to some people because they might only like one period of his and want everything else to sound but the same, but you can pick out almost any score of his and, and know when it was written. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, without knowing, uh, because it uh, the, he has these very distinct periods and it, he was always evolving uh, right up through the end. Uh, yet he had like... a a very very distinct voice you know that was recognizable through all of that so it that that's what is you know why he is my favorite composer he is incredibly you know protean he he was constantly changing yet he he had this way of approaching drama that's just ingrained in me like i measure all film music against <laughs> what he would have done 
Yeah. And it just seems like to, to me, that's the way to approach drama. So my <laughs> ideas now are so outdated uh, and it, it makes it a little difficult to, re- to um, relate to uh, a lot of film music now because I don't hear the same kind of voice, but I still hear his influence. I was just watching um, on Netflix uh, a series of unfortunate events. Mm-hmm. Which is not uh, necessarily, you know, a great Goldsmith homage, but there, I was watching, there was some scene on a submarine, and they're using, uh, uh, like, echoplex hmm. effects in the submarine, which is something that, that Jerry would have done. Right. Uh, and it, it was still, once in a while, we'll hear, like, a, maybe someone will do a, lo- a low piano. It's very, you don't hear it much now, but... Uh, it, it's often in, in, like, when people are trying to do something retro or in, a like, a kid's cartoon that that's when you can kind of get away with doing more like light motifs and yeah or the avant-garde kind of thing yeah or old school yeah it's funny because like a now avant-garde has the it's the exact opposite meaning now it's like (laughs) old school all the word word, term is like for cutting edge or something but it's it's crazy i i think and i think you know with with peter proud it definitely is you know like you said it's you can hear it and know pretty much exactly what period of his career it's in as far as the stripped down sort of spare early 70s but with the synths you know with the electronics that he you know kind of was growing into um yeah i yeah right before logan's run yeah and uh, i think he was using pretty much the same synthesizer setup um uh between those um and it, yeah, it's a weird score that, you know, it was hard for uh, Doug Fake uh, and Entrada to find elements for, he was looking, I think, for for years. Um, yeah, because I know it had been rumored lost, right? It was... Yeah, no, it's yeah. one, you know, this is, it's a score from, what, 1975. It, it, it's, there's had been a bootleg LP of it out for, you know, years and years, but ne- there never had been any movement to dig up the score for a real... Uh, album release. I mean, this is literally, it's, there's very few scores uh, that you can say this about that this is the first, you know, it came out as an album, you know, this many years after the film the yeah. came out. Because yeah. you know, Jerry was popular even, you know, by, I'd say the late 60s, you, you could set, get some kind of album sales, not giant, but you could, there was some market for uh, his uh, music. He wasn't and, Henry Mancini level, you know, popularity, no, uh, yeah, I guess. But. No, not at all, but, <laughs> but uh, you were starting to get, you know, soundtrack releases. You know, Coma certainly is no more of a commercial sound than uh, Reincarnation <laughs> of Peter Proud, but that got, that got an LP. Uh, so, yeah, there was a market, but that that thing, I think, you know, because the film it kind of was not a big hit, and and for the reasons we discussed, yeah, uh, wasn't really circulating around for years afterwards. And it's such That's a one of the last discover big discoveries, you know, of of his uh, output. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of that era. I mean, I'm a huge fan of all eras of Goldsmith music, but the '70s is definitely a big one. And it's so it's such a melancholy score. I mean, and yeah. it's but it has some really twisted um elements to it but it's it's so it's so moody and melon melancholic uh, yeah he got into it that, that's what i was going to say about the the elements you know the sound of it is is as an album 
it's, it turned out a little better than I thought it was going to, but it's still, you know, it's not the greatest uh, elements. Mm. But because of the way the score uh, is just, I think, conceptualized, uh, it's got this whole kind of murkiness. Right. Overall sound fits in with the theme of the picture that this is like the, you know, it's music kind of bubbling up from some lost you know it's from someone's subconscious and it's from like this other life that's sort of there in the background but it's not really there right. uh, so it, it fits in the man it's one of the few scores where i would say that the recording techniques and sort of the like aging of the elements actually contributes to the <laughs> overall effect and the, the mood um and yeah. it's it also even like it's sort of like but you know the i sort of central conceit of the movie is that this guy is really lying at the bottom of a lake somewhere you know so it's like this sound is kind of bubbling up from the depths of uh, of this murky water and that and you get the feeling of that and in, in there's all these kind of bubbling effects from this synthesizers right and um, and then just the overall sound of everything and then of course uh, Goldsmith liked using these like kind of echoplex effects, and I, I'm trying to remember if he even does it in in this. But there, there there's a whole kind of reverb, echoey mm-hmm. inequality a lot of it. One of the I don't know if uh, Doug has talked about this, but the, the, one of the reasons that they found a lot of the score in such good condition was that. Um, yeah, in fact, I think that there are Echoflex effects in it for uh, flute, and but they're mostly in the first half of the score. Okay. And so the reason that the, the first half of the score, I think, is a lot of that was found in stereo because uh, this flautist had, had did the performances um, that they use the echoplex for and then he apparently asked for a recording huh. you asked tapes of the score uh for you know <laughs> for his resume or something So that's where they got a lot of uh, a lot of that uh, recording from, and that's why the you know the late it's it's a little bit ironic because the bigger orchestral uh, parts of the score are in the later sections, which are still I think in, in mono. Yeah, uh, it's funny thinking about like that era as far as like you know the the you know stuff that you recorded you know off the television, and um, so thinking of like the other. Uh, box set projects that you've done uh, specifically like Land of the Giants, Lost in Space and and Star Trek um, I mean that is a treasure trove as well and I mean that had to have been like amazing to oh, sort of yeah. sink your yeah. teeth the, into that the, 
and the you know Star Trek was something we you know we were talking about from day one and was basically impo- you know seen as absolutely impossible from day one, and to see that finally get done you know that that certainly was the most exciting uh music project that i ever worked on and and to have that those tracks come in you know neil bulk uh does all the you know kind of uh, cataloging and Mm -hmm. and cutting of all those tracks so i have to wait for him and i (laughs) i'm on like uh you know chat instant messaging with neil almost every day uh either to just make a joke or something or you know that he's usually got some project that i'm about to work on or want to work on but get yeah getting those original pieces of music and then you know especially when things turned up that never got played on the show or that were completely on i mean that was just absolutely staggering to me but i have been you know i (laughs) i I have been incredibly fortunate. Um, I, I always say, except monetarily, uh, <laughs> in, in uh, being having worked. Uh, I've worked on so many dream projects, things that I always wanted to have on record. You know, since I was a kid. Uh, you know, when when I first started working with uh, Lucas. Uh, you know, I was in. I remember being over at 20th Century Fox on their recording stage with Lucas and and Nick Redman, who just died. Yeah. Um, and uh, them, I think Nick or somebody mentioned. You know, they're just going through a list of stuff that they had that they could p- potentially put out. And Nick mentioned, oh, well, you know, going through. Well, here's this and this and and uh, Fantastic Voyage, and I. And it was another like you know grabbing them by the lapels <laughs> moment, and I, you know I just remember bugging Nick and and Lucas daily about putting that out, about putting out the Omega Man, um, oh, right? And and you know the the first liner notes job I I got was uh, Verez's uh, Planet of the Apes album, which was you know. Oh, back in 97, that, yeah. that, oh, wow, I didn't realize so, that was your first liner notes. I've lost track of, you know, all the dream uh, projects, uh, and I, I'm starting another one now, uh, and I just, what I you know, I think I said uh, the last two things I've worked on are uh, after uh, Peter Proud are both also horror movie scores, and mm-hmm. uh, one of them I will say is something from um, the early '80s, and it's a great orchestral uh, horror movie score. One of my favorite albums um, that's expanded and sounds even better now. And uh, then the one I'm looking <laughs> working on now is a movie. Um, it's from the seventies and it's, it's got a reputation as just a kind of like one of the most outrageous, uh, and, uh, sort of offensive, uh, horror movies ever made, but it's, and it has got a score by a composer that I, who's always sort of been on my radar cause he's done a lot of horror and science fiction scores. Um, and I, and he has he did one thing that's one of my favorites, but he's not one where I'm like, oh, I got to get the next score by this guy. Okay, but but now I'm listening to this thing that that he did uh, and thinking, 
I that I've really underrated this guy, oh, and, wow. and he was a guy who <laughs> very much tooted his own horn and <laughs> kind of went out. He, he's no longer alive, and and was sort of famous for for describing himself as as a genius. Uh, but uh, I was listening listening to this music. Um, you know, his writing is just so sophisticated and, and brilliant. Uh, I, I, now I'm thinking I, I need to have more stuff by him. <laughs> well, um, and that was one of, one of my questions as far as the, the, how the, the number of projects, is there a project that you maybe weren't as excited or maybe you had underestimated all, the score? All, 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 uh, anything, um, I was just talking to uh, Bob Townsend about this actually at uh, uh, Nick Redman's memorial. Uh, the because the, I did um, last year, the year before, I did um, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's "The Haunting" mm-hmm. and uh, um, "Small Soldiers," right. and I told Bob um, when I heard those two albums, both of them, I played each of them once and. <laughs> was like, well, I never heard it, need to hear that again. <laughs> and I never went back and played them. And somebody gave me a bootleg of uh, Small Soldiers um, years ago. That was like two CDs. And huh. I was like, thanks. Uh, you know, I don't know that I'll ever listen to this. And I don't <laughs> think I ever did. To, and to me, Small Soldiers was just like, well, yeah, he did When Johnny Comes Marching Home. That's all it is, right? <laughs> and then in doing both the, these scores and the movie of the haunting is still one of the worst that i've ever seen yeah. uh, but you can say this about so many scores that uh, so many movies that jerry goldsmith scored but um you know i the haunting is is a, a i think a pretty elegant uh score in, in retrospect and uh small soldiers has got uh you know this the, it's got a theme for like the kind of hero action figures right. who are really the villains the, the military yeah. uh, figures and then it's got a, this all incredible theme for these uh, gorgonites or whatever the the, the mm-hmm. kind of monster anti-heroes and these are such freaking earworms times you know i have the opposite effect where i sometimes i'll work on a score like um you know inner space and explorers were both uh you know things i always want and i still love them and i mm-hmm. love their the expanded releases of them but in the process of working on them i think also i was overriding back then and lucas <laughs> was always screaming at me for going you know, so far in depth into trying to describe what was going on in like long cues, particularly right. like action cues, and uh, it's exhausting to 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 break, try to break things down. And also, I'm not a composer, and I'm not writing in musical terms. You know, I'm just 
I'm, I'm right. describing as much as I can as in layman's terms. And at, when you try to do that with a five-minute piece of music, you run out of words. To say very repulsive? Quick, very quickly, yeah. And it, it, it's, <laughs> there's only so much you can say. Uh, and some, uh, I'll say with Goldsmith stuff, I, I feel like I understand what he is doing more than any other composer. So with most of his stuff, I, there's, a, to me, always a lot to write about. Yeah. Um, but but st- still, in doing, like, Interspace and Explorers and, and doing or describing every track, uh, by the end, I was just burnt out, and, like, the, the scores, at least for a little while, kind of lo- had lost their magic because I was just sick of, of <laughs> playing and replaying them. Uh, so, that I've, you know, I have had things where usually if it's a score I know nothing about, and never really paid attention to it's usually a revelation Mm -hmm. as you have to learn you know when you you listen you figure out what the here okay what's the main melody what's the main piece of material and what's the relationship between that and and everything else in the score is is everything derived from that or is it are other themes variations of that and what does it mean you know how Mm -hmm. that how it's related uh, that's a fascinating process, um, and that usually gets me a much, much greater appreciation, and I wind up falling in love with uh, things. And and then, like I said, it's kind of sometimes the opposite when I'm familiar with the score. But but uh, I've t- you know Lucas kind of taught me to n- not go on <laughs> forever and not and and, and be aware of much- the page count. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, you know, be a little bit more general and try to talk about you know what the music is doing, uh, what its function is, as opposed to what every instrument is playing. Right. Um, So I, I, it's been a little more enjoyable for me since then. But uh, the other thing is that still. It's work, weirdly, and even though I would be doing this for fun if uh, I hadn't been hired to do it. But, you know, you still you have to meet a deadline. And sometimes there are things that are just awful <laughs> and they, yeah. that you don't wind up loving anymore. <laughs> uh, and you got to watch a terrible movie. And uh, so uh, some of it is still work. But I, it, it's been just an incredible uh you know, amazing stroke of luck for me to uh, have been able to work on all all the projects that I've been able to. Yeah, it amazes me that I get to do this, uh, and that there's still stuff out there, you know, that I would want to do, and that's that's still exciting. Like I said, I'm starting a big TV uh, box set. Um, and I'm so excited about it. It's something that I, you know, always wanted. Well, that kind of leads me. One of the questions I had about like the Land of the Giants set is, it was a, it's a highlights set. Whereas Lost in Space and Star Trek, those sets, you, you guys, your goal was get everything yeah. we can onto these giant sets. And Land yeah, of the Giants I, is uh, highlights. The Lost in Space, you know, was the last time we were able to do that, and. It would, even when we were doing that, we were discussing, well, what, you know, are we going to put everything out? And even, you know, Kevin Burns, who controls all the Irwin Allen trademarks and merchandising, you know, and, and who is a huge fan of the show. And he wanted 
us to do all the music. And he also wanted us to do a CD uh, where we recreated the um, pilot score, which is all tracked from a lot of, you know, Bernard Herrmann right. and Fox scores, uh, which I did. Uh, we, one of the most, the, some of the most fascinating research you get on this is you get all the paperwork uh, recording logs and everything uh, for the studio, but for the the pilot episode there was no paperwork. Oh, and so uh, there's a lot of famous pieces of music tracked into it, but then there's a lot of stuff that's not quite as famous. And I had to basically recreate all of that by ear. Wow! And there was a couple things we didn't have, and I found out later. And it kills me because if I would have just, you know, memorized this album, uh, <laughs> there, but there was some, I forget the score, was some African movie or uh, some zombie thing or something that, that Herman had done. That oh, I was that had, White Witch Doctor? That's probably it. Yeah, that, I actually had that album, but I hadn't committed it to memory. So there, there's a couple little cues from that in there that. I missed. And then there was something we could just never, there's some stuff in the big whirlpool sequence. We could just never identify because there was so much noise. Oh um, and it was all probably some Lionel Newman. Some of it was a Lionel Newman Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably more of it was other <laughs> Lionel Newman Westerns, but we just could never figure out what it was. I, I feel like we got like 90% of I, what was in there. I so. found it fascinating. I, I, you know, it's like, I, I liked the, the original scores for Lost in Space, but it was fascinating to hear the library cues, to hear yeah. the tracked stuff. Mike Gerhardt at La La Land was, you know, said, Go, "Let's do all of it. Let's make sure, you know, no stone is unturned." So we did it, and it was 15 CDs. I, I, I know that even on the Star Trek set, which I'm sure had a bigger audience than the Lost in Space set, it took them a while, and I, I don't know to this day if they sold all of those box sets. And it, it costs a lot of money to do that. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think with you know Lost in Space. Uh, that was sort of the last time uh, where with that something with that much music, you're going to see a complete set. So with Land of the Giants, and it was a very painful process, uh, but, you know, I had to go through and figure out what were the best cues. And there mm-hmm. were also cues that were damaged. Like there's a great, I, my probably my favorite composer to work on, um, those some of those Irwin Allen shows and especially Land of the Giants is uh, Leith Stevens who did mm-hmm. like the War of the Worlds right Skull was a master at doing like fifties science fiction movies and then got I think his he he was sort of taking the same kind of approach but he it was even cooler I think in the 
60s. He did one score for Lost in Space that has some of you know, my favorite action music from that show. Um, and then he did this uh, episode, you know, when in watching Land of the Giants, even way before we were going to do uh, an album for it, there's this episode called Manhunt where there's a giant, you know, fugitive from the police who gets trapped in quicksand and is pulling the, you know, little people's spaceship in and they're, they're trying to help him and rescue him. And there's a scene, like a fight scene uh, with this guy early in the show with this, that's got it's great fight music. And um, then there's this whole sequence where he's starting to get sucked into the quicksand and the, they're starting the spaceships, the spindrifts engines uh, and, and like trying to pull him out. And it's a fantastic cue. And both those two cues, I was like, Oh wow. I'd love to, you know, hear those. Right, right. <laughs> so when we were doing the, uh, shows and I got started getting the music. I could get Manhunt and start. I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear those cues. So I'm listening to, you know, this this cue where they're starting the Spindrift engines is like a long cue. It's like two or three minutes long, and I'm listening. It's like, oh, this is all great. And then like the last minute just starts turning into like garbled mush. Oh, geez. And uh, and then the other fight cue that I was looking for was not even there. <laughs> It was a combination of, you know, getting rid of everything that was damaged and having a certain amount that was missing. And then I, I, I made sweets from all the episodes and just had to slowly whittle them down until, you know, we knew we wanted the complete John Williams pilot score. We weren't going to cut any of that. Right. Um, and everything else was really subject to, you know, space limitations. Um, I think in this this one I'm working on now might be even worse because uh, it's it's more seasons of music. Oh. And, and you know, Lost in Space was only three seasons, um, and that's 15 CDs of music. Now some of that is a lot. I I think may at least possibly two full CDs of that were library music from, you know, other Fox movies. If you include the, the pilot right. and uh, there's a whole episode, uh, like a Christmas uh, thing set in the forties where it's all tracked from uh, F Fox movies. And then there's a bunch of uh, random uh, movie cues that they would use in, off and on throughout the the show so with all that stuff i think it almost may have filled up like two cds so that means uh 13 mm, <laughs> CDs. right that's still way more you know if you're going to be limited to four uh maybe you know you you could break it up into a volume one and two but you have to look at these things 
and say, are you going to do a volume you know, two? Yeah. Is yeah. there going to be sales going to warrant you? And you don't want to say, commit yourself to, you know, volume two. And then it comes on, doesn't sell anything. Yeah. That's a tough and choice. What you got to do. So yeah, it's, it is very, uh, and the, you know, the market for these things like shrinks every day as old people like us die. Yeah. Uh, it, that was so. one of those yeah topics that comes up is how, how sustainable is the current, you know, market for, you know, soundtrack collectors. So I know it, it definitely is a tough thing to, uh, to, uh, to weigh as far as like your releases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we're lucky, you know, Lava Land and Entrada and, uh, you know, these labels that are still standing are still very committed and spend a lot of money putting, uh, these releases out. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's very much a niche market, and they figured out a business strategy uh, that works for them and allows them to survive. But it's really a labor of love uh, by all of these people. And then we have to, you know, still <laughs> put up with uh, the abuse, you know, from people who who and and I I, I can't argue with them. I'd be mad if. Uh, you know that this was my favorite. If Land of the Giants was my favorite show and my favorite TV music, and I waited years for it to come out, and and I didn't get all of it, I'm sure that I would be frustrated uh, too. But um, you know, the other way to look at it is this could have never come out, and you right. could have never gotten anything. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we we put every did everything <laughs> possible to make that as good as it possibly could, and, and I think most people uh, did find it. Uh, a pretty enjoyable release. I, like I said, I've only heard from one very unhappy guy about that. Everyone else seemed good with it. Yeah, I think it. it, it I think it was pretty well received overall. There's a lot of good stuff on that set. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I definitely appreciate yeah, all your. Yeah, it's all just your a great, per great period. Um, you know, so you can't go wrong with '60s and '70s uh, TV music. Yeah, there was a lot of you know daring stuff that was done. That's still like from you know feature film composers working in television and just yeah. going back and forth. And it's not like they were writing down to the medium and they're just like you know still wanting to do crazy things or something interesting melodically um, yeah it, yeah it, it's it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating it up. it's very memorable um i was as far as like your your I, one of the the questions i was thinking of as far as a general topic um is i was sort of curious um if you have any uh film music opinions that could be considered controversial uh, uh well <laughs> I mean, what what I won't get into is like what I think of anybody alive. Okay, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, you know, I there were uh, one thing that uh, you know Jay Chataway said to me, like when in my, I think the first time I interviewed him, <laughs> he. Uh, I think at a clipping of something I had written about, you know, one of his scores and was like one of the first composers to read it, you know, read some insult that I <laughs> made about him. Uh, and he, you know, and I was, of course, apologizing and mortified. Um, and and uh, he said that basically once he got to know a composer that he would he liked their music. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's I think that's true of me too once I, if I get to know there's I do know a number of composers I mean I'm not like best buddies with them but I they vaguely remember me and right I talk to them once in a while and most of those people I like their music because I know who they are mm -hmm. I mean in terms of like opinions I, the one thing that I was thinking of I, I 
I, I, I think I had for many years an unpopular opinion in that I would seem like I was the only person who liked Jerry Goldsmith's Warlock score. <laughs> uh, and I was I always you might out have there championing it. And everyone and his brother, uh, the, I remember like uh, Kevin Casca, um, who's, a, who's a really good orchestrator and composer. You know, we were years ago having... Uh, lunch with him or something and he like mentioned that as a score that he didn't think <laughs> was very good um, so I was always like kind of trying to argue with people about this and I was very gratified when in Toronto you know put it out and I got to work on it and it expanded and for some reason once it got expanded and got out there and I think maybe sounded a little bit better. Everyone seemed much more appreciative of it. I certainly was. I was one of those who wasn't as much of a fan of it. was such a throwback to to me like to something like planet of the apes or mephisto waltz um it was like kind of this deliberately old school uh gritty you know like it was like a smaller orchestra true uh and it just seemed very super edgy the the, the theme itself you know it had it was done on synthesizers i think that turned a lot of people off um it's very dirge like it's yeah uh, yeah, yeah. And, but once he gets into the rest of what's going on in that score I, to me and the ending i thought was just absolutely gorgeous yeah uh, and it, and it's kind of not fully used in the film but i remember sitting with you know my friend listening to that and we were just like going nuts so this is like great classic you know jerry goldsmith and it, we were just so overjoyed that he, he could still do it so I, I was glad to see that score get a little bit more respect again once it was released now my other thing that i thought of and i this is something i still think i disagree with everybody on is the the whole idea that uh jaws 2 is a superior score to jaws ah um, yeah that does get it, debated a lot it's like a this <laughs> kind of consensus where it's just a sue well of course jaws 2 is much better score than than jaws i, I think you know jaws 2 it's a post star wars score so it's it's much the 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 orchestration the size of the orchestra the plane oh it's thicker it's, it's bigger on, it's yeah, yeah. It's all on a different level than J- the jaws is more like something like the Iger sanction or or even um uh black sunday which was done a little after yeah that it's his early 70s style uh you know it's a little grittier 
Um, it's like comparing the Omen to Damien Omen yeah, Two. Exa- yeah, exactly. The 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 playing is a little maybe a little more ragged in some parts, uh, but like just something like his beach music, you know, uh, tourists on the menu in Jaws compared to that, whatever that piece of <laughs> beach music, you know, in, in Jaws too, it, it, to me, that's like John Williams doing a, like a parody of, <laughs> of tourists on the menu. You know, when Jaws came out, everyone thought when that movie was in production, it was during the, you know, disaster movie cycle. And it was basically considered disaster disaster movie. Yeah. And then it wound up being like so much better. It moved so far beyond, you know, what the disaster movies had kind of accomplished. Um but Jaws 2, to me, as a film, is more like a disaster movie. And I feel like the score to Jaws 2 is more like what Williams was doing in an action movie, where it's kind of like bathos. Uh, you know, it is making something that's not really that grand or exciting uh, and treating it musically as if it's, you know, grand and exciting. Right. So there's these big, big, giant set pieces. Yeah. Um, and, and if that's what people want, okay. But yeah, there, there's a. I remember there's a comedian back after Jaws two came out who was actually did like a whole routine about how like you know Jaw the like John Williams doing Jaws two is just like adding an extra note. <laughs> you know, there's like. <laughs> It's like da 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 da, you know. And there's a part in there where I think he even starts doing like the the um, ostinato from Close Encounters and stuff like da 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 da. Uh, so <laughs> just to, to amuse me, himself, he was sort of just throwing everything you know in there, trying to get something going. Now I love the ending um, with the, the he starts kind of going into this fugue. Uh, stuff at, at the the climax, which I right. I, I think that climactic piece is really terrific. Yeah, and one of the th- I think one of the reasons I was disappointed uh, in the score on first hearing was, and I wonder if I'm the only one who remembers this, or uh, and it, it, I saw you know of course I was all excited about the movie and why there were like TV specials or. Uh, uh, news coverage of it on TV, and I remember vividly watching. Like, it's like here's the first scene, you know, you're going to see from Jaws two, and it was Brody in that like watchtower on the beach, and thinking he sees the shark, mm-hmm. and then you know the uh, causing a panic, uh, which I think in the actual movie has no mu- music. Um, has no underscoring, but for I, it seemed like, and I don't even understand how this happened, but it seems like they may have had uh, 
the uh, show the scene with the temp track. Oh wow! Because I, they used the this version of the shark fugue from Jaws, and it was. I never understood what it was because it's like that's not uh, anything in the movie, so this must be new music, right? And I was thinking, oh boy, he's going to be using the you know the shark fugue cue, which is one of my all-time favorite things Williams ever did. And then when I saw the movie, there's an absolutely no trace of of that music in <laughs> that's the movie. So crazy. Uh, and, huh. and when I finally got, um, you know, the Entrada late last version of Jaws that, that Mike Medicino worked on that I know I'm absolutely certain that what I was hearing is the unused music that plays right after, you know, Quint's got the rod and tackle and the shark first takes the line uh-huh. and, and, uh, you know, uh, Quint's like start the engine and everything. And there's no music there, but the, in the actual score that, William Throat, that's the first statement of the shark fugue, and it's, it's just a much slower version of it. Right, right, and right. And I that was tracked into uh, into this uh, piece of footage from Jaws 2. I was wondering if that was uh, part of the temp track. That's fascinating. You know, if he would have built that score around the shark fugue, uh, you know, it probably I probably would love that score. <laughs> and I do. I really, you know, it's not like you can't like it. It's, oh, of course, I yeah, uh, I love it. I, you know, there are no really bad John Williams scores. Everyone is kind of you know a masterpiece on its own level. That just is not to me in the top rank of. Uh, of John Williams' masterpieces no, for, for my my own taste, and and uh, yeah. it's just me that it's it's assumed most for most people it seems to be right up there. It, it's become the popular opinion in the same way some you know that uh, people are like Temple of Doom is the best Indiana Jones movie, but I still think Raiders: The Lost Ark is the best Indiana Jones movie. But um, yeah, it's, and why, I don't know. For one thing, like what you know, Spielberg just came out and said that that Temple of Doom is the worst <laughs> one. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that uh, to me like Temple of Doom has always been a little bit underrated because it got a lot of flack for how violent it was and for the you know the uh, Kay Capshaw character still gets a lot of flack but to me for me that was the last great Indiana Jones movie just because as, as a theater experience you came out of that movie just absolutely exhausted because mm-hmm. the, the 
level of of stunt work and and the the just this bi- building of sequences. Oh, it's like a forty uh, minute climax look, in that movie. The look, the look of it, uh, the the scenes in the Temple of Doom, uh, the, just the Doug Slocum's. Uh, oh yeah, his photography. Photography uh, is just so incredibly vivid, and and that's what you know. To me, that's the this like kind of last gas period of of uh spielberg working with those cinematographers and then he started using uh this guy whose name i can't pronounce um kaminsky yeah Yeah. uh although i think he used slocum all the way through last crusade though i thought yeah he did he did but that uh, last crusade uh is and i love a lot of that score but and and that's the movie that it seems like most people think is the best one because of sean connery i mean i do love it i remember seeing that just being profoundly disappointed just with the look of it it seemed really washed out that had some bad special effects and and it didn't have any sustained action uh you know on the level of the first two movies and and the villain is a midget well <laughs> like yeah. it's not this guy who's like five foot two <laughs> who's just not a threat so uh that i that's another i guess unpopular opinion <laughs> some people well, love that movie it's funny with the with the 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 originals and sequels because I think it's one of the favorite things people love to debate in our community. And my thing with something like Jaws or First Blood uh, from Goldsmith, it's like the original uh, score, the initial entry has subtext. The the score has some a lot of subtext to it for character, and the sequel scores just by the very maybe by the very nature of their sequels don't have the subtext so like i think yeah. there's subtext in jaws that's not in jaws 2 there's subtext in first blood oh, yeah. that's not in first blood part 2 now that i don't love the sequel scores but well that's and i think that that's like sort of a a um function of the 70s you know these even the like first blood is it's a 82 film but it's still kind of the hangover from the 70s yeah totally the 70s had this like big huge influence and that you know that to me is like the golden age of of cinema and uh and you got spielberg and you know lucas and all, all of our, our these guys that we worshiped kind of came out of the 70s so their story sense and a lot they, they there was more meat to a lot of what they did that gradually got leached out mm-hmm. of everyone as you got it more into the 80s and and, and after that and franchises kind of you know took over not that there still aren't yeah. great series within with multiple entries but it's yeah. it, it is interesting to think about first blood being a, a 70s hangover and first blood part two being a strictly like dead yeah, center an- 80s movie Although that, uh, and I think I've talked to you before about this, that I, I actually find, even though the style of scoring in First Blood is more um, along the line of my favorite, you know, edgy, heavy, dark Jerry Goldsmith, mm-hmm. um, I, I to me, Goldsmith was just I, I almost maybe has never been on fire uh, as much as he was doing uh, First Blood Part Two, and it, just in terms of matching the cuts and maintaining action and just emotion through it. I, the last time I watched that movie on television, I just was blown away <laughs> by all the stuff that he was doing and how perfectly it matched all the images and, and just the feeling. Oh, and it's so nimble. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's the big difference. And that's, I, I use that same word when I was kind of describing this difference between, those two the 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 if you and if you watch the 
the first one, it seems like there's a number of places where they move the cues and it's not matching cuts anymore. And it just sort of almost doesn't quite work. Uh, but it, it, the it's the second one. It's completely organic and, and just feels like you could not change a thing about that without just affecting the movie so much. And I think Total Recall would be a, another companion piece as far as like how much it matches the cuts, uh, yeah. and still is so has so much going on. Um, yeah, that's the uh, you know apotheosis or however that's pronounced of uh, of his action stuff, and he still did some later. You know, The Edge oh, and yeah. uh, uh, even Timeline, which was thrown out. But yeah. you know, the, he there was no doubt he could still write. Uh, terrific action material but uh, in terms of him just becoming i think consumed by it and and just absolutely hitting it out of the park where every cue is just its own little you know masterpiece and and forms this huge just kind of symphonic you know massive work yeah uh, that I, you know, total recall was really the climax of, of all that. I think. Yeah, it's different. It's 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 a form fitting, uh, tailored suit. You know, uh, as far as the score on those movies, um, that I think just got more difficult um, as the years gone on. I I think also the editing, you know, changed. It got, became a lot more fluid. Yeah. Um, if, if you had a locked cut, I think he could tailor his score so much yeah. more finely. Yeah, he. There's no doubt, and with Total Recall, you know, I think he just when he said nobody gave a damn. He, that's when he started par- streamlining, I think, and not putting you know seven different lines into every action cue <laughs> because he knew that it was not you know a lot of it was not going to be heard, and and he figured out how to do a lot of that stuff. You know, it still get the same impact with a lot you know fewer notes. Right. Yeah, it's true. Well, I think uh, since we we uh, we have uh, circled back to Goldsmith and even Total Recall, um, I uh, I will I will let you go. I won't take up too much more of your time, um, but uh, I'm actually really glad that we were able to make time uh, for this for this talk today. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, so um, yeah, and we'll just look. Obviously, we're going to look forward to all the next projects that you're working on. Uh, yeah, there's um, there'll be something out from Quartet. 
I'd say in the next month. Okay. Uh, I'm doing one for La La Land, another horror film for La La Land, which might even that, even that, that this, it's a rush project. So I would assume that would be out fairly soon. And then the, the big TV thing probably is for the end of the year, later in the year. Oh, great. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I'm very excited about that. That's, that's I love having that stuff to look forward to. Um, well, uh, Thanks very much, Jeff. I appreciate all your time. Thank you. So this wraps up my conversation with author Jeff Bond. I'd like to again thank Jeff for participating and sharing details and stories from his background as a film and TV music fan and also his immense amount of work on so many impressive soundtrack albums and books and articles throughout the years. You can find many of these albums that we discussed at La La Land Records, Perez Saraband and Entrada Records, all of these uh, soundtrack labels have a wealth of great titles to choose from. Of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. As always, I hope you found it both entertaining and informative. Music heard in today's episode included excerpts from Johnny Quest by Hoyt Curtin, The Good and the Bad the Ugly by Ennio Morricone, uh, music from The Land of the Giants, the TV series, uh, specifically the episode score Manhunt by Leith Stevens. Jaws and Jaws 2 by John Williams. Uh, the Q Jetpack from the Lost in Space pilot episode uh, composed by Bernard Herman. From Jerry Goldsmith, we heard music from the following. The Blue Max, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud, Total Recall, Music for Orchestra, that was a 1970 concert piece that he composed, Small Soldiers, Warlock, and Rambo First Blood Part 2. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at escortasettlepodcast at gmail.com, find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle, and on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's uh, score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. It's always appreciated. Uh, And also we are available on Spotify as well. Thanks again for listening.